Uh, last night was at an event in which my wife and I, we were put at a table in which um, there were people there whom I didn't know. And this lady asked me, she says, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, I get to pastor the best church in the whole wide world. And I just want you to know, I genuinely believe that. I love you so much. And it's a joy to be your pastor. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but every Sunday morning, we have deacons who get here really early and they prayer walk our campus. And then they gather with me, usually around 7.30 or so um, before services get moving and the day starts. And this morning, one of the deacons just called down heaven on our preschool, just praying for our three, four, and five-year-olds. And it just blessed my heart as a pastor to hear godly men praying for our children in our church. And God has been so, so kind. This week, I had a conversation with David Johnson, a Westwood member, usually sits right about there at 8.30. He is CEO and president of Dulos Partners. It's a ministry that uh, helps uh, equip indigenous church planters amongst unreached people groups around the world. David preaches periodically here whenever uh, I need a break or I'm out of town and just a great brother. And he shared the story with me that uh, in the 1040 window over in Asia, an area where the gospel is not welcome and it's illegal to be a follower of Jesus, he told the story of two women who recently, they've they've come to faith in Jesus. Uh, They're being discipled in small group Bible studies. Each of them individually sensed that the Holy Spirit was calling them to go into a village to share the gospel, unbeknownst to each other. When that day came, they both met and said, wow, okay, well, let's go. They go into this village. Now, this is not just any village. It's known as the killing village. When Christians go into this particular community, they are frequently persecuted and killed for their faith. Boldly going out of obedience to Jesus, they went anyways. When they went into the community, they were first met with the village chief, who was also a Muslim imam, a Muslim teacher. This man approached them and invited them to come to his house. Now, it is illegal for a woman to speak to a man in public in this community, So much so that a woman can be legally stoned for even having a conversation with him. But they went with him into his home. He offered them bread and was being very kind to them. And so one of the women asked him, why are you being so kind to us? And he said, two days ago, I had a dream in which someone told me there are two women coming into your village. You need to listen to them. These two women went on to share the gospel with this man. He repented of his sins, trusted in Jesus by faith. And as of today, there are four Bible studies in the village that used to be known as the killing village. Because two followers of Jesus went into a village to preach the gospel, we see Jesus on the move. And when we get to Mark chapter six, we see Jesus commissioning out the disciples into groups of two to go into villages and we see Jesus on the move. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter six. 
as a faith family, we're walking through this great gospel of John Mark, and we're seeing Jesus on the move in this fast-paced and hard-hitting gospel account. We've seen, we saw last week where Jesus left his ministry headquarters of Capernaum, He has now headed to his hometown of Nazareth, where we saw in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus was rejected by his hometown. People who knew him as a child, knew him as a teenager, knew him as a young adult, they They rejected him as the Messiah, as he comes and declares that he is the one that is the promise of Israel. So he leaves there and goes about, verse 6, going from village to village, teaching. Now the time has come for Jesus to mobilize his disciples for the task that he too has been doing. They've been bystanders in his ministry so far at this point. They've been watching, observing, learning from Jesus, but still sitting on the bench and watching from the sidelines. But now, verse 7, Jesus huddles the disciples, calls the play of what they are to do next. He's going to send them out on a short-term mission trip, and the time has come for them to spread the news all throughout Israel that the kingdom has finally arrived, and Jesus is the king. In Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 7, the scripture says this, Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointing many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus' commission of the 12 disciples in Mark 6 was for a specific people at a specific time. However, the instructions that Jesus gave the disciples give us principles that we can glean from today. Notice in the text these four principles for how to fulfill Christ's commission. The first is this, number one, remember you are an ambassador for Christ. Jesus calls a huddle, verse seven, and he summoned the 12. His plan through this short-term mission trip was for these six groups of two to go out and proclaim that the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, Old Testament law required two witnesses, two people to verify a matter. Sending the disciples out in groups of two would validate the gospel message that they were preaching. Yet this team approach that Jesus solidifies here, it provides encouragement for these disciples, safety for them and accountability. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. As Jesus prepares to send them out, he, verse seven, gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now the disciples, they did not have the authority on their own, but rather Jesus gives them his authority. He gives them his power over these demons. And so in this huddle, Jesus sends them out in pairs and groups of two. Now that phrase, to send them out, Verse seven, that is the verb form of the word apostle. 
This commissioning was Jesus' strategy of getting the good news out to all of Israel that the Messiah has finally arrived. The king and his kingdom were present and active. You see, the disciples were quite literally ambassadors for Christ. Several years ago, Christy and I got the opportunity to be in Kenya, and we got a chance to go see from the outside the home of the ambassador to Kenya from the United States. And looking at this man's house, I thought, man, that's a pretty sweet gig. I mean, it's a big, huge mansion. He's got a pool and the gardens and just, man, it's a good setup. Now, it turns out it's a pretty dangerous job living there. But I thought, man, that'd be a pretty cool thing to have. A nice house, nice setup. You see, the ambassador's role is to represent the United States government to the people in the government of Kenya. He does not speak his own words. He speaks what is told to him to speak. He is a representative of us. Well, that principle is what Jesus is doing with the disciples right here. They represent Jesus. They are ambassadors for Christ. And he is sending them out to declare who he is and to declare his message. Well, just as Jesus sent the 12 out as his ambassadors to Israel, Jesus sends us out as his ambassadors to the world. You and I represent Jesus wherever we go, in the workplace, in your home, on the ball field, in the classroom. You always represent Jesus. You're his ambassador. There's not a time in which you can take that designation off and put it to the side. No, no. You're always repping Christ. And as his representatives, we speak what he tells us to speak. We do what he tells us to do. And we show the world what he is like. The Apostle Paul told us about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So even there in that one verse, we see our identity. We are ambassadors for Christ. We see our mission, which is to make God's appeal through us. And then we see our message, be reconciled to God. Now that word reconciled, it means to make peace. We see uh, oftentimes in litigation, there's two sides that are at odds with one another. They're sometimes at war with one another and there has to be a mediator. There has to be one who can go between. We see in the scriptures that God is holy. He's perfect. He's just. He's righteous in all of his ways. Man, however, is sinful, evil in our hearts and intentions. All of us turn our backs on him. And because we've turned our backs on God, there is now enmity. There is now a hatred between us and God. We are enemies of God. Yet God loves us. God loves you. And he proves it by sending a mediator, one who will go between, one who will represent both God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus, who represents us both, proves and shows God's love for us that even while we were yet enemies, even while we were yet sinners, 
Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God towards our sin. Jesus gladly, willingly, joyfully went to the cross and he absorbed all of God's righteous anger towards our sin. And at the cross, he took it all. And at the cross, Jesus also represents us. He, through his death, dies in our place. Through his death, we are forgiven through faith and trust in him. The cross is where peace with God is found. The cross is where we can be reconciled back into a right relationship with God. Jesus came so that through him, we can be brought into a right relationship with God. So there's now no more, no more anger of God towards those who trust in him. You believe the gospel and there's no condemnation because Christ was condemned for you so that you don't have to be. Y'all, that should bring joy to your heart today. And if there's any verse worth dancing over, it's Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. You now have freedom and forgiveness all through the perfect work of Jesus. And so now, as those who have been reconciled by God and reconciled to God, we are now his ambassadors. We represent Jesus. Wherever you go, you're always representing him. You are his ambassador to the world. And you've got something to say. You declare to the world the gospel, be reconciled to God. So we see first here in the text, the principle of living through this great commission that Jesus has given to his disciples that is applied to us is that we are his ambassadors. But I want you to see secondly here in the text is that we are to choose the commission over comfort. Starting in verse eight, Jesus instructs the disciples to pack lights, no food, no suitcase, no change of clothes, no wallet, no guaranteed holiday in. What's Jesus doing here? He is preparing his disciples for their future. Because after Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost and the church is born, we see where Jesus sets these apostles apart and they are now going to proclaim throughout the world all that Christ has done. They're going to be applying the same principles that Jesus establishes here. Furthermore, Jesus is doing something more. He says, verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Meaning don't go looking for upgrades. If you get a one bedroom apartment, be content with that. If someone comes along and says, hey, I've got a five bedroom mansion with a pool and a putting green, the answer is no. Okay. You're not to be looking for upgrades. Why? You don't get into the ministry to gain materialistic things. It's not about advancement. This is not what the prosperity garbage that comes out of many pulpits across our land and is being sent out amongst the nations. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be ready to suffer. It's difficult. It's hard, but it's worth it. Here, Jesus 
He's calling his disciples to a life of simplicity. See, you don't need all this stuff, but there's also something even deeper that Jesus is doing here. He's calling his disciples to a life of dependence, saying, God, I've got to have you to provide for my needs. You see, if you fill your life with stuff, you're gonna find your life tethered to this world and you're gonna be less efficient and less likely, more reluctant to be willing to give up that stuff to obey Jesus and his commission. You might find yourself being satisfied and comfortable in this world. And so when Jesus says, I need you to abandon this for a new work, you may say, I don't know about this. So here is Jesus calling his disciples, not just to a life of simplicity, but dependence upon the Lord. You see, it's one thing to say you have faith, Uh but it's another to empty your pockets and say, God, unless you provide, this whole thing falls apart. The evidence of your faith is when you say, God, if you don't show up, we're in trouble. But you see, it's amazing how it requires faith, not just to go, but it also requires faith to give. You see, the mission requires faith to go and it requires faith to give because Jesus is sending out these disciples, six groups of two, to go and make themselves dependent upon the Lord to provide for them through other people. You see, for you and I, as those, all of us are, are called, all of us are, are sent to live where we are, and yet the Lord also is setting apart some for full-time ministry. And the Lord is now, by faith, calling others to rise up and meet the needs of those who are going. Both are important. Both are essential. Both require faith. In 2010, the Lord had called Christy and I to bring home our two sons from Ethiopia. We only had $1,000 in the bank and we were going to need $32,000 to bring our boys home. So we had garage sales and we applied for grants and we picked up odds and end jobs just trying to find a way to make the ends meet. And it just wasn't gonna happen. And so we prayed through the whole process, but the Lord knew where we were. And then one Sunday, a man my age, not wealthy, in our congregation in Kentucky, approached me and said, my wife and I, we've prayed about this, and my grandfather passed away and left us some money. And instead of buying a new car, we want to help bring your boys home. And so they wrote us a check that not only would meet all of our needs, but it paid an additional $3,000. And to the dollar, it provided for the hospital bills for the birth of our fourth son that we didn't even know we were pregnant with. And after we brought the boys home and after Nathan had come, here I was a youth pastor struggling to make ends meet for my family at this church, but saying, God, I need you to provide four boys, three and under there would be times in which we had household supplies that ran out, toilet paper or cleaning supplies, whatever. And we wouldn't tell anybody, but we would pray. 
And the next day I would show up at my office and the exact supplies that we needed were hanging on the door handle. To this day, I have no idea who did that, but honestly, it doesn't matter because God knows. And he listened to the cries of his people. You see, living a life of dependence says, Lord, I'm gonna need you to show up and show off in this way, but it also requires the faith of those who become those who God uses to provide. And when you and I step up and we use our resources, we use our money to help meet the needs of other people, we actually become the answers to people's prayers. You know what's also amazing is that when the Lord allowed us to bring our daughter home from China in 2016, it was families right here in our faith family who stepped up and said, we want to help make this happen. We want to partner with you. You see, we see Jesus sending out his disciples to get the gospel further. And what does he do? It's amazing how the Lord raises up others in those villages who would help provide for the needs of these disciples. And God does that. God loves to show his faithfulness. God loves to show his power through the provision of his people. But you know what's so amazing is Jesus did this. In Luke chapter eight, we see where there are some wealthy women who financially subsidize, they financially provide for Jesus and his disciples to have their needs met. In fact, if you go back and read that passage in Luke 8, some of those women, women one of them worked for Herod, which, oh my goodness, how much fun is that? The evil king who wanted to destroy Jesus, God used his money to provide the ministry of Jesus. But you know what's also interesting about this text? Did you catch the items that Jesus instructed the disciples to take? Right there, you see it there in verse uh, eight and in verse nine. These items are identical to the items that the Lord commanded Israel to take with them after the Passover on their journey out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. <laughs> Israel, they were dressed and ready to go. They had a, a shepherd's staff and they had their sandals. Here, Jesus tells his disciples, get your shepherd's staff and you have your sandals. Get ready to leave bondage. Get ready to leave Egypt. You are headed for freedom. You see, in Mark 6, it's driving us to Jesus, who is the greater Moses, who leads his people to a better exodus. Jesus is now setting apart these disciples. He is a greater Moses. He is a better Moses. And he is now sending out his disciples to declare that the captives can be set free. Those in bondage to sin can be set free from the good news of the gospel. The king and his kingdom has arrived. And there is a greater exodus than what took, back in, took place back in Egypt. And it's taking place through the person and work of Jesus. All who believe the gospel 
people, those who bank their lives on the apostles' preaching of Jesus will be saved. We will be rescued. The commission is the command to go and proclaim to the nations and our neighbors, believe upon Jesus and you will be rescued. You will find freedom from sin, death, hell, and the grave, all because of what Jesus did at the cross and the resurrection. That's the gospel. And we have something to declare to the nations and to our neighbors. Question is, are you willing to forfeit comfort for the sake of commission? We have a work to do, y'all. We have a gospel to preach and it's going to take all of us. But as all of us are scattered throughout Shelby County and beyond, we get to shine as lights for Jesus and point people to the one who came to set them free. Third principle we see here in the text is that when opposition comes, move on. Verse 11, Jesus said, if any place does not welcome you, or listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is preparing his disciples for rejection. Now this is not new to them because they've seen lots of people reject Jesus. They've seen the people of the garrisons, an entire village of people reject Jesus after he healed the man who was possessed by legion. He, they have just seen in Mark 6, they saw earlier in Nazareth where an entire village rejected Jesus. The ones who grew up knowing Jesus when he was a toddler, when he was a teenager, when he was a young adult, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And we see here, Jesus is letting them know, you're gonna probably be rejected too. Question, do you fear rejection? Do you fear that people are gonna reject you for your witness for Jesus? But I say to you, if they rejected Jesus, they're going to reject you. And you've got to be okay with that because ultimately it's not you they are rejecting. It's Jesus. And so we go and we proclaim this message, but we say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you and to your witness. And so I'm going to remain faithful to the message as an ambassador for Christ. I'm not going to mince words. I want to be as clear as I can be. I'm going to be as faithful as to the message that you have proclaimed. And I'm going to go and leave it, the results up to you. He tells his disciples, verse 11, shake the dust off your feet. Now this act goes all the way back to antiquity in which Jews or Israelis would go into different countries. And whenever they would leave, they would often take off their shoes and they would shake out the dust in part because they were physically showing that I am going to be getting rid of the infirmities and the, the, the foolishness of this old culture. I'm not, not going to bring this with me, but it was also a declaration of judgment. They're saying there's coming a day in which you will not be rescued you will not be saved. This is a declaration of judgment. And Jesus is saying, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. And so you just shake your shoes out, shake the dust off and you keep moving. You see, some manuscripts have an extension of verse 11 with the words, assuredly I say to you, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Both Matthew and Luke 
include that passage in which it's saying, for those who reject you, it's going to be better for the evil Old Testament cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those people. Because the one who's greater than Abraham, the one who's greater than Lot, the one who has come to set people free, when people say no to Jesus, there is a stricter judgment. There is a worse judgment that is coming. Now, some might say, well, Jesus, that's not very loving. That's not very loving for you to talk about hell and to talk about judgment. May I say to you, that's one of the most loving things he can say. If you see someone in a burning building, is it not loving to go and tell them? If you see someone in a car headed towards a cliff, is it not loving to warn them of the destruction that is coming? Jesus is lovingly warning people, if you reject me, there is judgment coming. Hell is coming for those who say no to Jesus. And it's those who have a continuous witness, those who have the opportunity to hear the gospel and they keep saying, no, 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 no. Eventually the Lord says, there's a worse judgment for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. That's sobering. It's heartbreaking. There's people in my life who I love with all my heart and they keep saying no. Don't miss the weight of what Jesus is saying here. It matters. What about you? Have you been saying no to Jesus? Have you continually been rejecting him? Hell is a very sobering reality. And those who do not believe the gospel, that is their future. Please, if you don't know Jesus, flee from the wrath that is to come. Run to Jesus who took the wrath for you at the cross. Repent, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, believe the gospel and you will be saved. But you have to make a decision. You're either with him or you're against him. You cannot be indifferent when it comes to this. Decide to follow Christ. The fourth principle we see here in the text is to simply preach the gospel. The disciples went out and they preached that people should repent. That word repent means to change your mind. It's kind of like a U-turn in which you're going down one direction. You're going one way. You're living for sin. You're living for yourself. You're the king of your own kingdom. And then you hear the gospel. You hear the good news of Jesus and what he did for you at the cross and through his empty tomb. And you do a U-turn. You, you turn away from sin, you turn away from self, and you turn to Jesus by faith. That's repentance. It's a U-turn in which you're trusting in Christ, saying, I'm going to believe the gospel. Well, here Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out and to preach. That word for preach, it means to herald. It means to proclaim. And the message that the disciples were preaching is he's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The son of God has arrived and his name is Jesus. He has 
has the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And so to prove that he's given us authority to do the same. So now these disciples are out there preaching and declaring who Jesus is and they prove the validity of their message by declaring not only the truth of the gospel, but backing it up through casting out demons and healing the sick. Now, can you imagine the disciples' response? I'm thinking of Simon Peter. Here's a guy who speaks first and thinks second. He's a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And here he is casting out demons. And he's probably like, let's go. Who's next? Probably healing the sick and like, come on, y'all. Let's, I mean, just, just reveling in this moment in which he now has this power and this authority that he's never had before. But you know who I can't get over? I am baffled by Judas Iscariot. Here is a guy who has been with Jesus. He has listened to Jesus' teaching. And here he is as one who is casting out demons and healing the sick through the power and authority that Jesus has given to him for this task. And yet he gets to the end of his life and he shows that he does not love and follow Jesus. He works for Jesus but he doesn't know Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says some very sobering words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Lord, I, I went to church. I got baptized. I gave. I went to a life group. I actually served you. Here we are in the Bible Belt of the South. And for those who are trusting in their works, those who are thinking they're good enough to pass the test of God's holiness, on that last day, the Lord Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus, not do you work for Jesus, not do you serve Jesus, but do you know Jesus? How terrifying on the last day to think that you're inheriting the kingdom of heaven when you don't. This morning, turn from your sin, turn from your self-righteousness, turn from all of your good works and believe the gospel. Trust in the good and finished work of Jesus for you at the cross. Believe upon him. Last week, I, after, uh, we looked at Nazareth and I made this comment that you can be familiar with Jesus and not know Jesus. The people of Nazareth, they were familiar with Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. After the 1045 service, there was a young man who approached me. I was hanging around down here at the front, talking with folks, praying with folks. And he just said, you said you can be familiar with Jesus and not know Jesus. That's me. I don't know Jesus. And I said, would you like to? 
He said, yes. And on there in the front row, I shared the gospel with this young man and he prayed to receive Christ. What about you? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? If you don't know Christ today, believe the gospel. Trust in him, bank your soul upon his work for you through his death and resurrection. Now for us who believe the gospel, Kenneth, what's next? Well, it's the commission that Jesus has given to us here in the text. It's this, go and impact your world for Jesus. In verse seven, Jesus sent them out. Verse 12, so they went. This is what we get to do as followers of Jesus. You get to go out as an engineer, as a police officer, as a mortician, as a teacher, as a banker, as a landscaper, as a stay-at-home mom, and that is your world. And you impact your world for Jesus. Who knows? You may win some Muslim imam to Christ. You may win some stay-at-home mom to Christ. You may reach some future preacher for Christ. You just go and be faithful as an ambassador for Christ. 